for everything, for very meticulously thought out companies to launch, you know, constellations or a small startup company with something phenomenal. But it also opens up potentials for, you know, vehicles going down the street without steering wheels. And so this has now worried everybody that has something, a skin in the game. Insurance companies are worried about it as well because they are insuring these. From the Defense and Aerospace Report, this is The Downlink, a podcast about the intersection of space, the space business, and defense. Not just what's over the horizon, but what's happening above it. I'm your host, Laura Winter. Hi there, podcasters. Welcome back. You've heard guests call near-Earth space. You know, places like low Earth orbit, geosynchronous orbit, the cislunar neighborhood, and even the moon, a myriad of names like the New Wild West, contested and congested, capital intensive, risk rich, the commercial frontier, the ultimate high ground. All of them are true in one fashion or another, and that's got some in the civil, defense, and commercial space sectors asking for a plan, rules with some teeth to take some of the wild and risk out of the space domain. They want to protect the $469 billion and growing space economy, the government-funded exploration and science programs, and the critical defense assets in orbit. But how do we do that? We don't yet have a globally agreed set of norms, let alone rules. My guests for this episode say there's no need to reinvent the wheel to get what all space operators want and that's safety. To explain, I'm joined by Kevin O'Connell, the former director of the Office of Space Commerce at the U.S. Department of Commerce under the Trump administration, and Mir Sadat, a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council and an adjunct scholar at the Modern War Institute at West Point, and Julia Siegel, also at the Atlantic Council. She's the assistant director of the Sokoff Center's Forward Defense Practice. Here's our conversation. Hello, Kevin, Mir, Julia. It's great to welcome you all to the Downlink. Great to be here. Nice to be here, Laura. Thank you, Laura, for inviting us. As it's the first time for Kevin and Julia, and it's also been far too long since we've had Mir on the podcast, it'd be great to have you three introduce yourselves. Kevin, you're the last administration's director of office and space commerce, which is at the U.S. Department of Commerce, and you have deep experience in intelligence and security issues. You've held positions at the National Security Council, the office of the director of national intelligence, and so much more. Even better, you're a space guy at heart. What's got you interested in the commercial side of space and what are you working on now? So thanks very much, Laura, for that question. Uh, You know, my my pathway in space commerce began actually in the mid-1990s. I was working for the director of central intelligence and we were doing imagery commercialization. And the director said, I need some help with this. And uh, my life was never the same since, actually. Uh, and so uh, I spent a lot of time in the national security community on this. I was the staff director of something called the NEMA Commission, which pre- predated uh, NGA. Uh, and of course, I was uh, on the NOAA Federal Advisory Committee for a dozen years, including four years as the chairman. So seen space commercialization from a lot of different angles, uh, culminating, of course, in my time at, at Commerce. Today, I'm running a small advisory firm called Space Economy Rising. Uh, We're advising a number of companies on strategy and finance, among other things. So uh, still enjoying this world uh, tremendously. 
And Julia, you're new. You're also a security and space policy expert. Tell us what you're doing at the Atlantic Council. Yeah, so I'm an assistant director at the Atlantic Council, um, and I help lead our uh, space security portfolio. So I get to work with a lot of great experts like Mir um, and talk about the security issues facing the United States, um, how the space domain plays a role there. Um, kind of got my start at the Atlantic Council working on a strategy paper on the uh, future of security in space, uh, which which provided a 30-year strategy um, for how the United States and allies should lead in the space domain um, and protect the future of security and prosperity. Um, and currently, we're working on a few different projects um, for the you know the coming year on space. Um, one coming up is on air power, actually, um, and there's a few articles that we'll have coming out on how the space domain plays into air power, lessons we're learning from Ukraine right now, um, and, you know, what that means for air and space forces going forward. So a little bit uh, down into the air domain, but also relevant to space. And Mir, you were integral in the establishment of the U.S. Space Force when you were at the National Security Council under the Trump administration. It's been a while, so please take a minute and introduce yourself and tell us what you're working on. So I left uh, left uh, the White House in 2020, I'm, I'm sorry, 2020, it's been a while, 2020. And then um, I went back to uh, Department of Defense um, and uh, actually was not working on space in my day, day job. So um, Atlantic Council offered me a fellowship uh, and I put, took that up and uh, West Point gave me a adjunct scholarship at uh, the Modern War Institute. And so I've been running uh, with a couple of colleagues of mine uh, from the different think tanks on space and try to push that envelope as far as we can. And then as well as uh, within the, um, the intelligence community to see what other things we can do to push towards um, prioritizing space for us. I've brought the three of you together today because you've all had a hand, if not the pen, in the authoring of the Atlantic Council's latest policy paper on space called Space Traffic Management time for action. But before we dive into the policy, I think it's pretty important that the audience gets a good grounding in just what space traffic management is and isn't, and why it's honestly different from space situational awareness or SSA, which is the term that it's most confused with. And Kevin, I think you should answer this one because you've worked the issue from both sides, from defense and commercial viewpoints. Sure. I, I think it's pretty simple when you walk through it. I think the definitions are very important, as is suggested in the paper. Um, but I think on the one hand, space situational awareness is really understanding in a much more improved way than we have it today, where things are in space, both in and of themselves, but relative to one another, how they behave in space. Uh, and obviously, with the ultimate goal being that we do this to avoid collisions between objects in space. It's pretty difficult because 66% of the debris in space is actually junctions are debris on debris. And so there's really no room for action there. Uh, and so uh, that's the space situation awareness piece. Space traffic management would be the part on top of that that says in light of improved awareness of where things are and how they behave, how do we arrange for people to understand how to navigate around debris, around each other, et cetera. It's the whole set of rules that would go along with that just like there'd be rules in your, when you're driving down the street. Um, I always saw space traffic management, to your point, Laura, about what space traffic management is not. 
you know, one of the things that people used to ask me all the time at Commerce was, we, do you want to be the, the Yankee traffic cop, Kevin? And the answer was absolutely not. What we really saw space traffic management being was largely the ability of operators to interact amongst themselves with appropriate levels of interaction with the government at the same time. So it's that whole set of rules that would go on top of that. You know, words matter so that when you use the word management or rules, that does imply regulation. So up front, what are you calling for? What's the end state? Mir, Julia? So uh, I think, you know, what we came up with was a understanding that um, there needs to be a common definition of what we mean by space traffic management because of what Kevin alluded to. A lot of people uh, are satisfied with just space situational awareness, um, and they're you know they don't understand the need for uh, STM or space traffic management. So we need to get to an understanding of what that actually means, what that actually means for industry, and then what that actually means between the government and industry, and then make it a little bit more complex. What does it mean internationally with our international partners? And that of course has other complicated factors because. They have their own industries and they have their own governments. And then each nation and each region, depending on their priorities, have different ways of looking at it. So that, that's an important aspect. And what, what we came up with, what we from the different consultative groups that we had, was that we, we just can't wait for everybody to get in a room, everybody in the world to get in a room and come up with something that we need to start producing uh, an, an understanding right now between industry, within industry, and then with government and industry. And then, you know, our diplomats and our businessmen and women have to sort of take that and convince the rest of the world that this is the new norm, you know, that they have to live with and and self-regulate with. Yeah. And just building on that, I feel like from our research, we kind of saw that um, you know, there are conversations going on, like um, industry is um, signing on to like the space, um, I think the space safety coalitions, like sustainability goals, and like, they want to have this conversation. And so do various government actors. But what kind of underlines this like, defining of what is space traffic management, and we also mentioned like, space objects, and like, how do you define a space object, because that gets behind like, how how effective a definition is because if we're defining it with words that we also don't agree on then you you don't really uh i guess you you stay in the same place um but what's behind all that is coordinating um both internationally and nationally so um kind of underlying a lot of our recommend recommendations um is the need for a globally coordinated framework so who has the authority internationally um and you know one of our recommendations is Perhaps ICAO um, could play that role, like expanding it out to the space domain. Perhaps a uh, like-minded organization could play that role. And then we need the right authorities in the United States to, you know, plug in for the national component. So um, the Office of Space Commerce, um, which Kevin knows better than I do, um, could play that role for the United States. And it looks like that's kind of where we're heading as well with, um, you know, recent uh, policy we're seeing. Whose idea was it to pen the paper? And why now? The title implies urgency, but space traffic management has been on the radar of many policymakers in defense and at NASA and commerce, as well as our allies and to an extent, even our adversaries. I mean, what's changed? What's 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 the rush? I think uh, so. One thing that if you look at uh, what we noticed in our research, we, we went back and did some research and 
the last year and a half, you have almost a paper or two papers coming out each month on this topic uh, in Space News and The Hill, wherever, you, wherever you're looking at internationally. And so the last 18 months or so, this topic has you know, gotten a lot of attention in the academic and in the public uh, perception point perspectives. So that's, that's one piece. Um, two, I think the uh, industry is worried as well, right? That they, you know, if you are a small startup company, uh, there's a lot to lose if, if, if you lose a satellite, right? I mean, your company could go under. If you're a large constellation, that could disrupt everything for you as well. So whether you're a small company or you're, you know, mega uh, constellation company that's producing satellites, you're both kind of interested in this. It's not, it's not just a, you know, oligopoly or the big guys or the or the little guys that are interested in every. All the people are interested in something for this. At the same time, we have, you know, uh, uh, satellites that have no maneuverability, right? That that's that's something that we have to consider, and you know you would never, you know, have a car go down the street without a steering wheel, right? That's not an idea that you want to ever envision unless it's a cartoon. So we have that coming in as well. So when you see all of this and you see where the international um, community is actually in, is able to get into space as well to, into the business, which is a great thing, right? But at the same time, uh, you know that opens up the floodgates for for everything for very meticulously thought out companies to launch, you know, constellations or a small startup company with something phenomenal. But it also opens up potentials for you know vehicles going down the street without steering wheels. And so this has now worried everybody that has something a skin in the game. Insurance companies are worried about it as well because they are insuring these. You know, so this is something that is, uh, I would say, on the minds of everybody. The, the government's always concerned about it. Government government would love to regulate everything, so of course they're going to always be like, you know, I this concerns me. But this is a point in time where everybody's on the same page, saying we need to address this, uh, and so that that's where the the sense of urgency comes from. And Julia. You know, we keep hearing the words congested and contested often. The phrase is kind of becoming cliche, to be honest. In real terms, can you describe the orbital environment now and what you think it's going to be in the future? Yeah, sure. Um, So right now, I believe it's about 4,800 active satellites um, orbiting Earth. So um, sounds like a lot, but in the next few years, the, um, the next decade, sorry, um, there's a few different kind of, you know, measures of how many actors are going to be up there. Um, I believe what the most recent one I saw was like 30,000 objects most likely to, um, you know, join orbit. Um, and that doesn't include the paper satellites that, um, you know, might bump up the numbers a bit as well. Um, but yeah, so obviously that's a, you know, what is that, sixfold? <laughs> I'm not too good at math, the increase uh, to how many satellites are orbiting the Earth. So definitely about to get more congested in the next 10 years. We also are seeing satellites um, play a bigger role in national security, which um, within the Atlantic Council, Mir and I are part of the forward defense practice. Um, so our focus is very security driven. So there is a little bit of that security focus to our paper as well. Um, and I think that kind of points to the importance of satellites. You're seeing with the current war in Ukraine, like. Starlink has played a major role. Other satellite like services have also played a role. I think that will only make the industry stronger or um, 
I guess, a more attractive option for, you know, defense industry and other industry actors. So I think that will almost like influence um, more, you know, satellite or space development in the future. Um, so that's that's one point on it getting more congested. I'd also say, um, I want to say it's about 20 spacefaring nations today. Uh, those are those with launch capabilities. Um, there's overall like 40 um, nations in space today. So that points to a pretty big increase from before the 2000s during the space race when there were about three. So I think those all point to just like the changing space um, atmosphere. And then in general, with like what Mir was pointing out, we're seeing articles come out like on a weekly basis on space traffic management, but also on like um, other developments within space, like last year seeing um, Russian ASAP testing, um, which obviously has an effect on, you know, orbital sustainability. Um, and I think those also just show, you know, increased activity, both malign and um, positive in space, um, and just further points that need to like act now. It, Laura, if I could add to that, you know, um, the Department of Commerce, like their database, space database, um, they projected that, you know, the, the global um, satellite forecast estimates like 45,000 satellites to be launched in the next decade, right? Of, of those like 45,000, 95 are expected to be in low Earth orbit, right? And that indicates, this indicates that like 95% of those satellites um, are expected to or, you know, operate it in, in one orbital segment, right? Leading to that discussion of growing state of congestion, which which creates a per perception, right? The, that there might be a, a risk factor to collision or conjunction in space. And then of course, additional space debris. So that that kind of adds to that, whether that's true or not, that's, that's a, you know, these are all projections, right? But that also adds to that sense of urgency. I mean, the debris problem has been a, a, a long recognized problem within the space community. What what both uh, Mir and Julia have highlighted is the fact that it's finally become more publicly known that it is a problem. And what it's really all about is the potential threats to the astronauts aboard the International Space Station, first and foremost, the billions of dollars that we've invested in space and the potential of everything we talk about and expect in the growth of the space economy. So, you know, this is about not precluding future action because of something that's going on today. Uh, we can see examples, you know, we have become way too familiar with astronauts getting into the escape capsule aboard the ISS. That's happening on a much, much more regular basis. And, uh, you know, th that's not uh, some somebody stopped me at a conference and said, hey, is that like getting under your staircase when a thunderstorm goes by? And I bit my tongue and said, no, it isn't. Uh, you know, it's because it takes an entire day. Uh, put aside the physical and the mental impact on the on the astronauts themselves. You know, it takes them a whole day to suit up, get in the capsule, be ready to go, et cetera. And of course, another expense of that is the fact that the highly choreographed research that goes on aboard the space station is, you know, is thrown off by that. You also see other examples in the launch windows that are closing. We've had, uh, uh, you know, both Peter Beck and Tony Bruno talk about the, the narrowing of launch windows. And so people are seeing there's a real impact to this. And, and so we do have to deal with it. You know, time for action is not now. It was probably yesterday, but but now is better than never. So. Uh, we do have to deal with it for lots of important reasons. 
And, and to highlight what Kevin said, you know, in uh, just like in March, right, you had Astro Astroscale signing a contract with, uh, you know, the European Space Agency to conduct a study on uh, collision avoidance as part of the, you know, collision uh, risk uh, estimation and, you know, mitigation activities of the ESA, right? Um, you also had North Star and SES doing something similar. So uh, peop- uh, organizations, commercial and also sort of uh, non-governmental are actually starting to do this on their own uh, and, and starting to realize, oh my God, we need to start preparing for this and we need to start calculating for this. And so um, if, if there's no uh, unified effort in this, what ha- will happen is the, the, the organizations that can afford those investments and, and, and research studies, they will benefit it won't necessarily be for the greater good. It will be because of what their specific focus is, right? So we need to kind of open up the aperture so that everybody benefits from that. And Julia, you know, as you said, there are some 20 countries that have launch capabilities. That's either government or commercial or both. Is this going to be like herding cats in the Serengeti? Or do you think that diplomatically the Artemis Accords can serve as as a starting point, or are you advocating for some other kind of framework? Yeah, I think there are good like starting places that already exist. So the United Nations Office of Outer Space Affairs, um, that's a good starting point because it's an already established route, you know, for coordinating with actors that are already in this space. So I think we can use um, like fora that are already out there as well as like areas where industry has signed on. So I I mentioned those um, sustainability practices earlier on. I know the Space Data Association also has um, kind of a, not a framework, I guess, a data system for um, involving, you know, industry and um, kind of creating an opt-in notification system. So I think framework like that, both for like the more technical side and the policy side of this are good starting points. So we're not necessarily advocating to, you know, tear down what's already been done. We're advocating for um, adding to that and building into um, existing, you know, documents or existing conversations. Uh, Like as um, I like how Kevin framed it as time for actions, not now. It was yesterday. That's uh, I think we'd we'd all agree with that. Um, I, I think it's a way to just like build this into a conversation that should have already been happening and is finally starting to like pick up some um, speed. Um, and yeah, I, I don't necessarily think we need to break things down. I think we just need to make sure that it's central um, to the conversations already going on. But I'd hate to say this and it's really cliche, but talk is cheap. How do we get this moving at the speed that's needed? I'm mean, just, you know, Kevin, just as you said, we needed this yesterday or last year or, or 10 years ago. So I, I think speed here is, is, you know, is a defining word on this entire topic. And I can apply it in different ways. On the one hand, while we certainly need government action, international government action, uh, but all as well as industry action. Uh, the question is, where will you get the most speed out of this? You know, on the one hand, the geopolitical environment we live in today uh, means that we can have good conversations at the United Nations, but the likelihood of any agreement there is is really, really very small. Now, that said, you can't wait till everybody gets on board to make progress either. That's the other important point about that. Uh, on the other hand, you have industry who's taken a much more uh, urgent interest in this themselves for for very understandable reasons, putting their heads together, trying to work together to think about standards and what are practical rules of the road 
that ideally would be codified when there's a gentler geopolitical environment, you know, they'll be codified accordingly or, or not, or somebody else would come up with different ideas. Government and industry both have important roles here, et cetera. The other part of the speed aspect of this, and I've said this many times before, is when you think about the tools that are in your toolkit, on the one hand, the government is really doing more. We're seeing more budget put in this area. You know, my, my office is, is programmed to get, you know, a very good, my old office is programmed to get a very good uh, bump in, in resources for this problem and, and other things. Uh, and we see the Space Force, we see NASA, others paying a lot more attention, at least in the paperwork that they generate for people to respond to. Uh, that's one measure. It's not the only measure, of course. How much you actually spend is another measure. But when you think about the speed at which government operates relative to the private sector, what I argue is, given the very robust ecosystem we have of companies that are in this space, there's no better tool than to leverage the private sector immediately in this area. Uh, and it, it, you know, it's not, I've made, in my last congressional testimony, I made a parallel to my 30 years of experience on commercial satellite imagery. And I basically said, we don't have those 30 years to waste here. Uh, there's a much richer ecosystem than there was in the imagery business 30 years ago. Uh, lots of companies, diverse approaches to data collection and, and, and uh, you know, data analytics, et cetera, and an ability to leverage literally trillions of dollars of investment on the private side in areas like cloud computing, data management, analytics, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So I think it's to our own, you know, our, our own peril if we fail to use this lever immediately uh, on what the private sector is doing. So speed is really important in both domains. We have to be pragmatic about what we're going to achieve, you know, in, in all of these areas. Yeah, and, and I, Laura, I agree with Kevin wholeheartedly. So the speed of relevance is uh, that I think really is coming from private industry, right? That, that's not, the government is not known for speed of relevance. And so, but there are things that we, did in government that we can learn from, right? And we, in the paper, we talk about how the Navy uh, used the automated uh, identification system, right? To co-opt or to bring on board other uh, vessels, other nation flag vessels from other nations that took some time, right? And, and they bought into the concept and that, that they came in. Uh, we can definitely do that by incorporating best practices and, and the tools and the techniques of industry Right to incorporate that into what we have, and then you know, uh, uh, advantaging uh, foreign nations and foreign companies that actually adopt our our way of doing traffic management, right, and accepting our agreed upon sort of principles of how we exist in, in that in that uh, environment, and we can we can offer that to them. Uh, another model that was very untraditional was the weather services model of sharing information for weather services, right? And so I, there are things like that, but I don't think we need to necessarily go and go back and have the government reinvent that mechanism, right? That mechanism exists in industry. Um, you know, a couple of years ago, uh, there was a conjunction going to happen over Pennsylvania. And uh, when I was talking with folks at NASA, days leading up to it, the, the standard of variations were Im impressive. It was everything from six feet to like a mile and a half. Um, and every hour I was getting an update and it was still all over the place. And four hours into when this potential conjunction was going to take place, still the standard variation was too too great for me to even understand. You know, a mile, 600 feet, like where, where are we getting these calculations from? And guess what? Leo Labs had posted it like a week ago on 
their Twitter, like this is going to happen at this time. They're barely going to pass each other, but if you have binoculars or telescopes, you can watch these two satellites pass, each, pass over each other in Pennsylvania, whereas the government didn't have the, even the technical capabilities to understand that. So that we, we have to understand where the, the expertise lies, and we need to harness that expertise, bring it in, instead of reinventing it, because you're, you're, that's, that's where your speed of relevance goes away, because you're going to have to reinvent it, get the right people, and then you have to then sell, sell it again, the concept, right? You're going to you're going to have a long delay here. So I think that's that's where we really need to be pushing forward on. Yeah, you know, it's pretty clear that the capability, at least uh, from both the government side and, and and from the private sector, is there. I mean, just like you said, Leo Labs is there. They're building new um, array telescopes all the time to track things in space. So, you know, what then are the actual hurdles? I mean, obviously, you know, sharing data with adversaries could be a sticking point to moving forward and, and, and creating a real space traffic management system. But even, you know, how would we address tracking classified spacecraft that, well, the location needs to well, stay classified? I mean, how do you, how do we get through that? How do we muddle through or do we? Remember, safety is safety. So adversary friendly, you know, wh whatever you want to call it, uh, there is a dimension of U.S. policy that was established in Space Policy Directive 3, but also has been continued in the current administration that says that some data will be given away for free in the interest of safety. OK, and so that's that's what it is. I think there's an important question that's trying to, you know, we, we try to solve it at Commerce, you know, and, and more work is needed on it on you know what what is the the minimum requirements for the safety data that's given away free that then does not necessarily interfere with commercial activities on top of that i sometimes make a parallel to the gps world uh you know what the government was able to do that then fostered a lot of innovation in the private sector it's not a perfect parallel but um you know and so how do we how do we think about that problem uh People often think that the safety piece, the improved conjunction analysis, which is enormously complex, they often think that's the end game here. And it's certainly the most important thing we have to do to improve space safety for all the reasons we've talked about. However, it's not the end game. It's the starting gate for a whole new set of services that are coming in space that will be the foundation of the space economy. That's a very important way to think about it. But we do have to do the safety piece first. In other words, I'm not dismissing that as the, you know, the most important near-term thing that to, to help solve. You know, there are already a number of efforts to create and agree to a set of norms of space behavior. The Space Force Chief of Space Operations, you know, regularly brings it up in his meetings with his foreign counterparts. The UN is making progress. Uh, but I find it really interesting that in your paper you really dig into orbital regimes. You know, we're not really hearing much about that. We're not really hearing about the, you know, how all the moving pieces fit together up there. Could you describe what you're proposing? Yeah. Um, so most of our, or through our discussions, um, like in shaping this paper, we largely focused on low earth orbit, um, seeing it as like the most immediate challenge. Um, so, you know, a lot of our discussions started with a focus on LEO and then expanded out to GEO and cislunar space because the challenges in the different orbits are different. So LEO is overcrowded. We're seeing a lot more 
um, you know, risk for collision. Um, a lot of like the uh, typical um, like examples we're seeing of two satellites bumping into each other are LEO. Um, in GEO, it's more there's slots for um, satellites and we're kind of, you know, filling up on those. Obviously, advanced tech is making it um, easier to, um, you know, in, involve uh, more actors. Um, but still, there's a problem of, you know, paper satellites or those that aren't necessarily existing, but more just holding a spot in line for a nation or industry, um, kind of taking up spots. So I think in GEO, it's more about equitable access to space, um, almost making sure we're making the most of that space, whereas LEO, um, at least most immediately, is the concern for, um, you know, um, coordinating between actors, um, making sure there's those rules of the road. Not to say that's not important in both, but just for the focus of this paper. Um, and then lastly, cis lunar space, definitely further out. Um, we found that like the technical capabilities that um, are currently in existence, they don't necessarily um, track cis lunar as well as they do like LEO or GEO, um, which is why I think, you know, we're starting to see um, Air Force Research Lab and some industry actors um, develop capabilities for space domain awareness um, out in cis lunar space. So I think, at least, at least from my perspective, and I'm curious to hear what Mira and uh, Kevin think, but um, cislunar space seems to be starting in almost like the technical, trying to get a sense of SSA um, and not necessarily conversations more specifically on space traffic management, which makes sense because um, maybe we don't have the full capabilities to track out there. Um, and it's obviously not crowded currently. So um, there's not necessarily a need for, you know, the focus we have on LEO of avoiding collisions. Um, so those are kind of the three areas we focus on, uh, more so on LEO, but I think the broad idea of having like a globally coordinated framework for space traffic management, having nationally um, authorized, you know, bodies to lead on these issues applies to all, all orbits because you have that framework um, and then you can like uh, further any policy and actions um, in a more like coordinated way than we do today. I, I thought though that you also made a suggestion about, you know, perhaps where satellites in LEO should be, like, you know, what should be their actual altitude um, in reference to where the International Space Station is or where the Chinese Tiangong uh, Space Station is. Because uh, I, I found that really interesting that you guys got you know, into that kind of specificity or as an example of what perhaps should be, you know, just an agreed upon rule, like don't fly your satellite at this altitude because it's a dumb idea. <laughs> yeah. So we, yes and no. So we get into that in our paper and what we um, essentially recommend in our like principal section is, you know, Satellites that lack maneuvering capability, don't have reliable communications, those shouldn't um, be above the International Space Station. However, the asterisk that we have to that is um, space is rapidly changing um, with you know, space tourism plans and different um, advanced technology that'll kind of change the domain. We don't want something that is uh, you know, too based on the current state, because I think that's where we go wrong when um, things are changing and then things are not updated. And then we have what we have today where um, 
uh, the Outer Space Treaty is outdated for uh, where things currently are. Um, obviously, you can't entirely avoid that, but I think that if we kind of keep those flexible, so we name it as a current starting point, so like perhaps we can start there, but I think that something like this needs to be, you know, either um, reassessed on a regular basis or um, left flexible, like in the language of like drafting policy, just to just so that, you know, the conversation keeps going and there's room for flexibility as uh, space continues to rapidly change. And, and Laura, one other thing that um, uh, to piggyback on what uh, Julia said. So the United States is really good at creating standards, right? And so uh, our standards then catch on and other people, other nations, they they follow our standards. And so, for example, the the uh, orbital debris mitigation standard practices that we had, right? <clears throat> that became a norm, right? That the 25-year idea that satellites uh, should be, you know, uh, you know, be, be, be uh, you know, deorbited and and to remove satellites from the operational orbits, right? That that became a norm. The the difference is we need to go into those standard practices and revise it more often. We can't just let these things sit there. These documents sit there. And as the operational environment and space, like like the way Julia described, you're going to have private space stations, you're going to have other things going on. This document or these sets of standards do not evolve. They are, are, are they need to evolve with an anticipation sometimes, not ad hoc, an anticipation of the evolution of that environment to anticipate that so that those norms then and standards become adopted, not just by the United States, but all the other nations that look to us for guidance. And so that that is something we need to consider. You know, the last one I think was 2019 of that standard, and so we definitely it's definitely in need of urgent updating, right? And to see what what do we need to narrow the window down 25 to 10 to five, whatever, and or do we need to add some more things into it, and to socialize that to the international community? And so those are things that we can do, and we do have that you know sort of you know we we have NASA, right? And so. Uh, people look to us for guidance. And so that's one thing that we need to really uh, capitalize on. You really bring up um, a great point that segues perfectly into my next question. With all that in mind, you know, who or what should, dare I say, you know, represent or coordinate U.S. equities in space when we're outward looking uh, towards the international community? You know, we've lot we've got a lot going on in the civil defense commercial sectors. And to be quite frank, I mean, just nationally, I'd say policy and management is disjointed. And I'm not criticizing. It's only recently that launch costs and miniaturization has made space much more affordable for all. But here we are. We've got to get our house in order. And how do how do we do that? You know, who's gonna pull this together? I mean, this is why you have a National Space Council and, and what we, we used to playfully refer to as a whole of government strategy. Uh, you know, and uh, many of my colleagues from overseas would sometimes say, gee, what's the underlying philosophy of whole of government? I said, there's no philosophy at all. What it means is that we work every single week. We spend more time with our colleagues from other agencies than sometimes we do with our family, you know, to try to solve hard problems. It brings continuing focus. It brings near-term goals to get things done. And it brings, we think, you know, outcomes at the back end of it. So there has to be this whole of government approach. Uh, was always the case on space traffic management. It is today and it's it will be into the future. So that's certainly one piece of the story. I mean, it is a team sport. Uh, exactly. 
we're running out of time, but I want our listeners uh, to go and give the paper a read. So I'd like you all to give a teaser for that and to do that and to close. I want each one of you to briefly, really briefly, tell us which recommendation in the paper is your top one and why. And I'm going to start with Julia. So we ordered the recommendations in order of priority. So I'd say the establishing that international coordinating authority is, is the easy out here. Um, I would say, though, that personally, the recommendation that I um, like the most is um, the need to see our allies and industry as partners from the start. Um, and going off of what Kevin was just saying, um, the National Space Council can be a great way to do that um, through the, the recommendation is specifically um, conducting surveys to get their opinions early on. Um, I just like that recommendation because I think it's a, you know, it, it gets at the, um, I guess the heart of the whole paper is the fact that space is just internationally, whole of nation, like everybody is acting in space now, industry, government, military, um, and it's important to have everybody involved in the solutions to problems like um, space situational awareness, space traffic management, and so on. And Mir? Yeah, so I, that's recommendation four, I think. Uh, and so I totally agree with recommendation four. I would also um, highlight recommendation, recommendation six, which is the uh, updating of our standards and our best practices. Um, and so that gives, um, and we need to do it in a way that uh, incentivizes the private sector. Um, and if we do that, then, you know, everybody kind of benefits. So that would be, you know, four and six would be my choices. You said one, but I give you two. <laughs> And Kevin, you get the last word. Well, I don't have them memorized by number as the other two, as expected, do. But uh, I, I think that they've hit on two of the most important ones. Number one, international cooperation on this is absolutely critical. It's a very hard problem. Uh, you know, during my time of commerce and in, in many different ways since, uh, we see our allies very enthusiastic about, you know, working hard together on this, you know, moving beyond the political, which is important, to the technical and the details of, of how we make this work. Uh, that's one very important set of partners. Uh, and then lastly, the private sector. Of course, again, I, I just think given the how quickly the problem's changing, this is the most important tool you have in the toolkit. Uh, and in this particular market area, uh, you see considerable sophistication uh, that's been backed by private finance, private entrepreneurship, et cetera. And for us to not use this tool immediately, uh, again, will we'll really limit our progress and, and come at our own peril. Kevin, Mir, Julia, thank you for coming on the downlink and sharing such thoughtful perspectives. Thanks for having us, Laura. Thank, thank you, Laura. That's it for this week. If you like what you're hearing, follow the downlink on Twitter and subscribe to the podcast on your favorite podcast platform. For the latest defense news and analysis, listen to the Daily Defense and Aerospace Report podcast hosted by Vago Maradian and listen to Cavish Ships to hear the latest on what's happening in the maritime domain. I'm Laura Winter, and thank you for listening. Thank you.